people then say, oh, I want to be, I want to learn how to be much more intuitive and psychic. And my response is, really? You, you really want to do that? <laughs> this is the Earth Body Mind Spirit Podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Stokes. Today's episode is an interview that I did with Dr. Dean Radin back in 2015 and never published. Dr. Radin is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's also a teacher at the California Institute of Integral Studies and the author of four books on psychic phenomenon, including Entangled Minds, The Conscious Universe, Supernormal, and most recently, Real Magic. We cover a number of topics, including uh, the relationship between quantum physics and psychic phenomenon, the experiential nature of understanding and learning about psychic phenomenon, the dangers of psychic power, uh, and his very interesting story of how he came to all of this. Um, I will leave links in the show notes below to all of his books, and I would highly recommend that if you're interested in any of these topics, that you check out the one that most calls to you. And without further ado, uh, my interview with Dr. Dean Radin. If you wouldn't mind uh, just telling me a little bit about how you came into this field of work and what sparked your desire to study the powers of the mind and how they connect with the larger cosmos? Uh, if I were 20 or 30 years younger, I would probably say something like, uh, it's because I read Harry Potter and wanted to know if it was real. <laughs> so right. the, the equivalent books when I was a child were more like fairy tales mm -hmm. and parables and science fiction, a lot of science fiction. Right. Uh, so you don't need to read much of that to start wondering whether the stories, are, is it pure fantasy or is fantasy based on something? And the more I read about mythology, the more I realized that some mythology is essentially metaphor. It's pointing at something. It's not the right. thing itself. But because the thing that is being pointed to uh, repeatedly suggests that we have more potential in our minds than right. we think we do, right. that I got curious about it. And, and I think I went to the librarian one day and asked if there were any studies about psychic phenomena. Uh -huh. And so the book that I got was called... Uh, and how old were you when, when, this, when you went to the library? 10 or 10, 12, right. maybe something like right. that. Yeah. Uh, the book was, I'm trying to remember exactly the title, it was something like, ESP, A Scientific Evaluation. Uh -huh. And it was written by a guy named uh, Hansel, Mark Hansel, who, unbeknownst to me, was a, a major skeptic of the day. Mm -hmm. But in his book, he described experiments that had been done and his reaction to it and so on. And while I, I understood the, the skeptical responses, it also occurred to me that he was trying really hard to make it go away. Mm -hmm. And so I became more interested in, well, what... Do the, what do the people who have actually done the experiments say? So then I discovered the whole library section on parapsychology, which I didn't even know there was such a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I read all of that, and I became intrigued with the idea that science is, as a tool could be used to study anything. And so here was a small band of scientists over a century who had been doing that and discovered that using basically the same methods as used in other areas of psychology primarily, uh, that... Some people do have telepathy, and some people do have clairvoyance, and so on. Right. So that's, that intrigued me, and I never forgot that all the way through graduate school. 
Uh, and I also noticed that these, these ideas were never discussed in, as part of academic training, mm -hmm. with one exception in psychology where it's completely dismissed. Mm -hmm. So I thought there's some kind of disconnect here because there is a literature, there has been some science, either nobody knows about it or they're just not paying attention to it. So I, I found it intriguing and after many years figured out a way of working as a scientist in this domain because I always was just fascinated by it. And what was that? What was your first sort of introduction to working as a scientist in this domain? Well, I, as a graduate student, I was already doing experiments, uh, but it was mainly when I at my first real job at Bell Laboratories, uh, we had enough leeway in our, our work that we could spend about 20% of our time doing anything that we wanted to. Nice. So I decided to, to do experiments involving mind-matter interaction and clairvoyance and precognition. Uh, and my colleagues were valuable in helping me to make sure that they were done correctly and evaluated correctly. And some of them were very skeptical and others were not. Right. Uh, but I got to the point where I was doing experiments. I justified to my management why I would spend time doing that. Uh, and then I got a, uh, approval to use the imprimatur of Bell Labs in some of my publications. So that, that elevated it to a whole new level. Right. Because now this was Bell Labs doing this, not just me. Right. Uh, and I caught the eye of um, people in the U.S. government who were doing this. Mm. Now at the time there were just rumors that mm -hmm. the government had a, had a program, but now I met those people and they invited me to join the program. And that's... This was now 1985 mm -hmm. when I first had the opportunity to work full time doing this kind of research with other people who were very smart and had the right resources. So that's what convinced me that if it was possible to spend a career doing that sort of thing, that that's what I wanted to do. Nice. Great. And it turns out it's not possible. <laughs> so so I, had to, I had to make it possible. Right, right. And, and you did that by... By going where their jobs were and by creating jobs where there weren't any and making sure that right. uh, I had met people who were in the position or in an institution that might have a position. Mm -hmm. And following my intuition, I was able to basically work continuously in this field now for 25 years, something like that. Wow. So the majority of my professional career now has been mm -hmm. full-time research doing this kind of work. And are you um, so what on to the present day then what what's the what's your most what's most interesting right now that you're doing research on that is sort of keeping you going to the next level of, of what you're trying to do? Well, some of the projects that we've been working on the last five or six years have been looking at how to take these phenomena and take it out of the fringe of science and put it more into a mainstream. Right. And the reason why this is an issue is because uh, the way that science has progressed is, is seen, is reflected in the way that academia works. Mm -hmm. That you have departments and you have disciplines and if you're doing something that doesn't fall in the discipline, it's very difficult to get anybody to pay any attention to it mm -hmm. because there's no way to evaluate it and the whole process, the way the journals work and all the rest of it depends on the discipline. So we have lots and lots of disciplines, probably hundreds or thousands of disciplines, mm -hmm. all of which you can think of as a silo that's very deep. Mm -hmm. So a lot of expertise in these mm -hmm. silos. If you're working in a silo that's right next to somebody else's silo, 
you have no it's different language, different jargon. Mm-hmm. You don't even know how to evaluate it. It's right. it's very difficult to know what to do with it. Right. So we're working here with something which is not just multidisciplinary, but it's it's truly transdisciplinary mm-hmm. because it's the interaction between psyche and physics. Right. And there is no discipline there. Right. There's nothing that that looks directly at how mind interacts with the physical world. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, though, that there is a place within physics uh, where there is an, an open question about whether or not mind and matter interact, mm-hmm. and that's in the foundations of quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. and in particular the quantum measurement problem. Quantum measurement problem. The, con- the measurement problem, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because we know that uh, if you gain information from a quantum system, it changes its behavior. Mm-hmm. There are lots of interpretations about why that's occurring, but it has something to do with measurement, observation, Observe, you know, it, it in, something in there is is related, perhaps, to what we would think of as information processing in the in the mind or in the brain. Mm-hmm. So I chose that as a a place where you could entertain uh, something of interest to a mainstream discipline, but actually use psi research as a as an entree. Right. So that's this is what gave rise to a series of studies using optical systems where we're looking at the role of a mind as the observer mm-hmm. to see whether or not it actually has a, a difference that you can measure in a quantum phenomenon or a quantum mm-hmm. object. So the answer is yes, and so I've been able to publish in physics journals. Great. And that, as a strategy, I think is the way that parapsychology stops being a, a fringe discipline and shows that it can be relevant to other disciplines. Mm-hmm. So the same is now slowly happening in, in perceptual psychology because of evidence that we have some means of perception that is that transcends time. Mm-hmm. So again, from from a physics perspective, that's interesting. From a perceptual perspective, it's also interesting because it is known that the, the brain anticipates things that are coming up, readiness waves and other names for ways that the brain gears up for something about to unfold. Mm-hmm. And these can happen as far as 10 seconds in advance mm-hmm. before you're aware of it. Mm-hmm. So... It's even though the phenomena we're studying here is not something which is predictable. You know, we 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 don't say make a decision ten seconds later. We say something is going to happen. We're not. We don't even tell you what. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, we see something like a readiness wave, mm-hmm. which suggests that there's mm-hmm. our perception of time is not mm-hmm. is not uniform. There's some, and that readiness wave would be somewhere sort of measured as like a brain wave or an activity yeah. in the brain somewhere. Yeah, so there's it's called slow cortical potentials. So mm-hmm. it's a slow brain wave that you can see building over time, and then when you become conscious of something, it reaches a certain peak. And mm-hmm. so the, these are internal gearing up systems unconsciously. Right. So what we see are unconscious gearing up for things that are not predictable. And then it looks a lot more like precognition because you don't know what it's going to be, mm-hmm. and you can't predict what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So that's that's also been a way of an entree into a mainstream area, and so we're looking for other ways of. Have you um, have you in in speaking of entrees into the the mainstream area in quantum physics and, and psychic phenomenon? Um, is there studies that you're doing that are sort of using the idea of quantum entanglement as an entree in, sort of connecting psychic phenomena to a quantum entangled idea, or is that...? Uh, only At this point, only in terms of a metaphor. Uh-huh. So we have experiments on the drawing board, um, almost literally the board, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, would look at quantum entanglement to see whether the mind can interact with mm-hmm. it. The reason why entanglement is interesting is because 
not only is it kind of a metaphor for telepathy mm -hmm. or just for any kind of interconnectedness, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, entanglement is a very fragile thing. As, as studied presently, photon entanglement is fragile. Mm -hmm. And so any form of observation of either side of the entangled pair will Will, will, will collapse it. It's mm -hmm. no longer going to be entangled. Right. So it becomes a really interesting target for the mind. Right. If, you're, if you pay attention to one side of an entangled pair, can you collapse the entanglement? Right. Well, that, that becomes an interesting experiment. Right. And it has practical relevance because uh, the whole point of quantum cryptography rests upon this. That you, can you, you give me a, a, just a brief definition of quantum cri cryptography? So when you, do, when you send a message from here to, here to there and you want it to be completely secure, mm -hmm. you want to know that nobody's intercepted it. Mm -hmm. So if somebody intercepts a conventional message by, by sniffing it electronically or right. tapping into the fiber, uh, you, you can read what they sent, which of course defeats the purpose. Right. So quantum, crypto quantum cryptography takes advantage of the idea that you're sending information, but you're sending it in entangled pairs. Mm -hmm. and, and when you do that, uh, if anybody sniffs on either side of it, it will destroy the entanglement, and you can detect that the entanglement is destroyed, and then you know somebody sniffed. Right. So you know it's not secure. Right. So that's what's happening. And this is now a technology that's, that you can buy. Wow. So if we can show that the mind has a capacity to, to uh, degrade entanglement or, or stop it altogether, uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to. It, it, it won't. It will be detected as a break in, right. in the cryptological system, but it would also reduce its use. Its mm -hmm. utility would be reduced right. if it turns out that somebody with their mind just thinking about the system right. would basically break your system. Yeah. Well, it's not so good anymore. Yeah. So that that's where we can show that this is not simply an interesting theoretical idea, but it has pragmatic consequence for technologies right. that are being developed, and for technologies in quantum computing as well, right. because those yeah. also rely on an entanglement and yeah. quantum coherence and other concepts that you know, may this, be vulnerable. This is just a speculation, but it, it seems to me that uh, I, 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 that your tack of, of what you were just saying, that if, um, if it is directly applicable to the tech industry and secure systems and quantum, we all know that quantum computing is the next field of computing, right. that that... that then people marriage, pay attention. people will pay attention, right? And they'll stop. They won't care whether you know right. the, the scientists in the mainstream are saying no. They're like, well, it's making a difference in my business yeah. application. Uh, so. Ultimately, uh, uh, skepticism dissolves pretty quickly in the face of pragmatics. Right. So that's the yeah. partially where we're going. Right. So then the other area is uh, within healing and uh, so-called energy medicine healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So some people that I've met and that certainly have been written about are really, really good. At doing, they, they you know they do this and people get better somehow. Right. So we're going to do a project where we can see if we can measure uh, are there um, detectable physical changes that are associated with people who these real experts. Mm -hmm. uh, can we record it? Can we reproduce the signals? Mm -hmm. Will they produce a healing response? Yeah. We don't we don't know yet, but that's right. that's another project, and there is one that's purely pragmatic mm -hmm. because. In, in that case, there's a huge amount of science that needs to be done, but we're, we're going to finesse that mm -hmm. and go directly to, can we make a machine that simulates an expert healer? Mm. Interesting. If we can, then nobody cares how it works. It'll, you know, right. they, it'll be useful. Right. And is there, um, is there work that you've done or that you know of or that you guys are planning on doing that sort of re relates kind of the healing effect of the placebo effect to 
psi phenomenon and how um, you well, know, even with our own minds in our own body or with someone else's mind in our body is there yeah is, so is it's that, so studies looking at uh, the feeling of being stared at kind of in that domain does mm-hmm. does your mind and your body will make a, uh, an interaction, but will my mind interact with your body? Mm-hmm. So many studies have been done along those lines, and the answer is yes. It right. does make a difference. Right, right, right. That's not quite placebo, though. That's right. more like the role of, of intention and right. the mind-body connection. The placebo does come into play, though, because we know from a lot of studies that if you believe that you can do a certain psychic task, you can do it, and if you don't believe it, you can't do it. Right. So we're dealing with psychological filters that turn on what you can perceive and what you can't perceive. Right. So if belief modulates physical effects as well within your body, it's, it clearly is it's happening throughout the whole body. It's not just psychological, but it's a physical effect as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's relevant in some way to why people can turn on and off psychic ability mm-hmm. through belief. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that's the case or not, but... Since placebos are so important in medicine, it behooves us to understand better what is the actual process. Mm-hmm. What, what are we turning on and off? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some of it is uh, explainable by psychoneuroimmunology, the, the mm-hmm. branch of medicine that tries to make the connection between it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, they don't even know. They don't know right. why it works. Right. You, know, you can use fancy yeah. words to make it sound like a discipline that knows how it works, but yeah. the ultimate connection all the way back to subjectivity Nobody knows. Yeah. It, it seems to me that uh, if, if you think of the placebo effect as your mind, your belief, healing your body, that's self-psychic phenomenon in a way. I mean, you can explain it as the neuropsych, whatever that is, but it's belief, and belief is not, it's not a measurable phenomenon in science right yet, you know, so they... You, well, there are, there are ways of measuring belief, the okay. simple way you ask people, what, what do you believe? Uh-huh. You know, on a five-point scale, do you believe this or believe right. that? So there are yeah. ways of, of getting, yeah. the, you know, objectifying the subject. I guess I misspoke. Not that you can't measure belief, but that we we don't know what it is. It's not like a neuron you can point to and say, there's there's a there's a belief in your brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the, the more general problem is the one of, of subjectivity in general. Mm-hmm. That order, as a philosopher say, with qualia. So you, you have an experience of eating an orange, which, which is a certain subjective sense, and we don't know... How is it that the machinery of the brain and the body, how can that give rise to this internal experience? Mm-hmm. So the external, internal part of neuroscience is a big mystery. Mm-hmm. I mean, and many neuroscientists believe we will eventually understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many others think you can't understand it. We don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, related also to the idea of awareness, that uh, we don't know what gives rise to this internal self of self-awareness and and the sentience in general. Mm-hmm. So philosophers are split on it. Some people say awareness is fundamental. Say mm-hmm. Some say that it's not. That it, mm-hmm. It's an emergent system. Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so shifting tax a little bit. Um, so the, the project that I'm working on uh, is specifically really like how can we use this information and specifically how, how do our relationships what, what is the, the research that you've done um, tell you about how your relationships impact you on a psychic level? And how can we um, sort of harness that to better our lives and, and specifically, uh, you know, just better the world in general, but I, 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 on an individual level to start with? I don't know. 
that's a tough question. It, it is a tough question, yeah. Um, well, let me, let me sort of drill it down to a couple of ideas that I've had, and maybe you could sort of give me your opinion about those. And um, One of the things that I've been um, experiencing throughout my uh, personal experiences in this field is the nature of how um, close relationships have an impact on our, on our body. You know, on our on our mind and our and on our emotions, and so one of the things that I thought of is this idea that um, you know, if we are truly psychically connected all the time, which it seems pretty clear that we are, just let's just set aside all skepticism and just imagine we live in a new world where everybody accepts that this is the new reality that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems more practical to think of ourselves as like a node of perception and action inside of a network of relationships which include our human relationships and the relationships with you know plants and animals and the biosphere and the planet and the solar system and the universe Mm -hmm. Um, so if we are that node we're just a node then it seems um, important for us to at least be more conscious of how we interact with the relationships around us. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the old saying, you know, you're doing to others as you have them doing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I guess that that's sort of where I've been putting a lot of my energy and research is how do we um, best... How, how, do you be, how do you best behave as a node? Yeah, exactly. And how, given if we are a node, what would make the most sense for us to direct our attention and our behavior in our mm-hmm. life? Well, I don't think you need to go to psychic phenomena for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in many ways, what you're talking about uh, is uh, the ecology of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the classic description there, the classic uh, proposal is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. That's, that's yeah. the best way to behave. Right. So yeah, yeah. what more do we need than that? Right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very true. And it seems also that... Uh, you don't have to go to psychic phenomena, but they're they're sort of self-referential. They kind of they well, feed each other. One of the things that quantum mechanics tells us is that ultimately we live in a holistic reality, right? Or a relational holistic reality, right? So elementary particles are not quite as elementary as originally thought from right. Newtonian's new mechanics. Right. Uh, instead, elementary particles are relationships that have something to do with information. It's like descriptions. It's almost like, like we're we're living in a a, a written story. Mm-hmm. So the descriptions of things and the relationship between them it, it creates the reality as we experience it. Mm-hmm. That's true at the very elementary levels, all the way up as high as we can get. Mm-hmm. So there's this relationality everywhere, mm-hmm. and a, a, a holistic kind of relationality where it's not simply that that this thing is produced by a relationship between the elements and its interaction with the environment and so on. But it's it somehow represents the, the entirety. It's it's everything is in there. And of course we, we don't experience it that way except under unusual states, some unusual mm-hmm. states, you will experience this as the entire universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in an ordinary waking state that's not the way it is. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem that way. So mm-hmm. part of the, the, the challenge then is to have people simultaneously be responsible for their the object that they are, their embodiment, which you were calling a node, mm-hmm. which is a separate thing. Mm-hmm. You need to be responsible for that because otherwise 
right. you fall apart and right. other people yeah, have to yeah. take care of you. <laughs> but at the same time, recognize that you are a part of the whole. Right. And so you have different responsibilities. If you are only a separate object, mm -hmm. in many ways you can see how a strong belief in that would give rise both to nihilism and to the kind of, of civilization right. that we have now. Yeah, that exactly. we, we tear everybody apart in order for that little thing to survive. Mm -hmm. if, if you saw it in a larger sense, as some cultures do, that individuals are there but the culture is more important than the individual. Mm -hmm. That's still individuals in, in a larger mm -hmm. thing. It's one right, step right, in right. that direction. Right. But to, to live fully with the notion that you and nature are not different in mm -hmm. some way, or you and the universe are not really that different. Mm -hmm. At least at some level. You know, I, it's very difficult to deny that my hand doesn't feel like an Andromeda galaxy, even though it may be connected in some way. But in a deeper sense, in a, in a sense from consciousness, uh, you can get into meditative states where you start feeling that. Mm -hmm. So some aspect of us as, as individual objects can learn to live where we're simultaneously objects and yet we're the, same, the right. whole at the same time. So it sounds to me like the, the, the best way to help people to align with this idea, which is the, the, you know, all the ancient texts and the modern science are telling us is the way it is, is to have those experiences. And I know, you know, in, in my case, when I had the meditation experiences that I've had and then the other shamanic experiences that I've had, that's what happened. Those that, I, that came to me I experienced it, and then it became part of my life. Right, um, and so I yeah. was thinking of it more of an intellectual level, like what can I teach people yeah. so that they, but more. In and and the, the answer is, on an intellectual level, it doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah, when I speak to people who are uh, are scientists, you can categorize them by their belief in these kinds of phenomena based almost completely on what sort of experiences they've had. If they've never had anything that, that's even remotely strange mm -hmm. and from a conventional perspective, or they don't do meditation, they don't do yoga, they don't do any of that stuff, mm -hmm. their sense of reality is extremely different mm -hmm. than somebody who's had even just one unusual experience. Mm -hmm. So that, that really does tell us that we're not talking about uh, the use of logic and reason to convince people to be a certain way. They need, to, they need an experience in order to have that right. transformation. Right. Now this is not true for everyone because in my own case, I got interested in this area because of curiosity mm -hmm. and intellectual curiosity. And the large part of the reason I stay in it is for that as well. Mm -hmm. So since I got involved in it, I've had some experiences, but not nothing wild, you know nothing right. nothing right. super dramatic like people have. Right. Uh, but that was it's enough of a clue to me that I'm on the right track. Right. So but that's not the driver for mm -hmm. me. For me, the driver is is mostly an intellectual puzzle but recognizing also that you don't get the perennial philosophy out of nothing it's perennial because you see it in every culture right. yeah. so so to, to write a book that or to just even try to teach people as, as spiritual teachers do to that you can be a different way you know what well, the civilization can be a different way mm -hmm. they they do it generally by talking people into a transformative experience. Right. Usually meditation yeah. or sometimes the teacher has a special gift of Shaktipat or something and they can mm -hmm. kind of push it. Uh, but that seems to be the, the time-honored way of making it happen. Right. Because why we like to think that people 
people will change behavior based on rational reasons. Mm -hmm. Just look at the, the uproars about climate change, and mm -hmm. you see immediately yeah. where yeah. people yeah. don't act rationally. So, I, I even as the water is rising above their hips, they're not actually <laughs> yeah, ra yeah. rationally. Right. Um, I don't know if uh, this is the same question I asked earlier, asked in a different way. But for the already um, convinced, or those who are already transformed into this state of thinking of themselves as an interrelated being. Um, uh, it sounds like I'm going to ask the same question in a different way, but I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for clues as to how we could use this information um, okay. to so our benefit. The, the reason why... So here's a six-word memoir. Uh, inquisitive, excited, surprised, and sometimes wrong. <laughs> So the, I have to say on the recording that that was the cap of the honesty. Oh, yeah, of, of a, a T. Um, so the value of the kind of research that I do for people who already kind of grok it in some way uh, is a verification that their internal experience is real. Mm. Because depending on how strange the experience was, people immediately, they, they start looking for a verification. You know, am I crazy? Is the other people talk about this? You, will, you, you bump up against a lot of abject nonsense. And the, the main way that people get information now, you go to Google, you go to Wikipedia, you look yeah. at movies and so on. Yeah. It's, it's a mixture of entertainment and fiction. Right. And so you, you would come away with that thinking, well, I'm not going to tell anybody about that because it sounds crazy. Right. Or you find groups where people kind of talk about it in hushed terms and they can very quickly spin out of control. Right. Where... You know, and become conspiracy theorists and the whole thing. Right. So, I think the value then of a scientific approach, and might might add on to that a kind of calm and reasoned scientific approach that is right. not trying to sell anything other than look at what we found. Yeah, uh, is a sense of comfort that the experiences are real. We don't know very much about them, but there are a couple right. of ideas about what they may mean and that sort of thing, and yeah. it's simply part of the way the universe is put yeah. together. You know what I really appreciate about your books, the, the, the stuff that I was able to read was, was, was exactly that, was the, the measured approach. You know, because so often when I get, uh, personally I get angry when I read someone who makes a bunch of claims and they just go over the top about you know, what you can do with this, yeah. with this information and with this, with this realization that we are connected on a psychic level. Um, but to, and, and I was, before I read your book, I was thinking about, well, how do we articulate to people that there's this subtlety here and that there's small effects and that they're, they're, they're incredibly fragile, you know, and that you, we, we can't really predict them very well. And so I, I just wanted to mirror and say thank you for, for putting out that work that is measured and is like, you know, uh, not making more claims than is actually there, but really sort of looks through all the material and because and, and it really did validate my own personal experience saying like okay what what's important to me is that we we bring this stuff into the mainstream like you're trying to do as well and and um, make it useful mm -hmm. not because the worst thing that you can do to, to damage a movement is to make more claims than you can possibly fulfill right you know? so so, so I, I, I should moderate that uh, the the we're dealing here probably with uh, a normal curve uh, as any kind of human performance falls into a normal curve. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of people will show a little bit of something because mm -hmm. we're, we're right. not dealing with magic dust, we're dealing with some aspect of the way that the mind interacts with the world. Right. 
some people are going to be very far over on the right side of that curve. And so these, these are the Olympians and these are the, the PGA champs and so on. They're not normal people anymore. Right. So at the at rarefied levels, you have people who can do remarkable things right. and the effects are not small, but they're rare. Mm-hmm. So it's true then, if you, you look at books and... Uh, they, they will make claims that, that sound as though you can, through five simple steps and a lot of money, <laughs> yeah. uh, become a yeah. superstar, and that's right. simply not true. Right. Some of those people who try it will turn out that they have talent, right. and they will get quite good quite fast. Yeah. But it was an accident. Yeah. You know, it, they didn't... Yeah. It, there's yeah. only so much you can learn. And, and it does. It seems to me that the the old adage that you know it's, it it takes hard work. You know, it takes hard work. This you know all Olympians have a coach and have dedicated years of practice and, and training and talent. And talent. But all of those things combined. Right. So um, I, I like that as an idea of that's something that uh, people can do with this information and say like, well, if you want to develop these capacities, you know, here's all these things we know work: the meditation, the yoga. All these different types of practices, they've been doing them forever. You can dedicate yourself to them and you can develop these abilities. And if you have talent, then you may see the results. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, yoga is a great example where uh, that what you gain is pretty much correlated with what you put into it. Yeah. Just like any physical discipline. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's physical yeah. and mental. You put yeah. a lot of effort into it and you have even a little bit of talent, yeah. you can go pretty far. Yeah. I mean, that, like, the, I see. My wife is heavily into yoga, and uh, we have books of people in various kinds of poses, some mm-hmm. of which look impossible. Yeah. They look like if you get into that, you will die. <laughs> yeah. and, but, th- but they can do that. So, right. I mean, th- these are really yeah. superstars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, in my own personal experience, having done lots of long-term meditation practices and yoga practices, um, I noticed that as I stop doing it, you know, like a few years out, and then and then I try to focus my mind again. There's there's no way. There's no. nothing there. And then if I'm back into it. Then it's like you know, and and I do start to have some pretty amazing results when I stick to it, you know. Yeah. But the work is always there, you know. The, so let's see. I think I have a couple more questions here. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you. Um, I've always been fascinated. So I spent. Um, you're familiar with the work of Joseph Campbell. Uh-huh. He's, I, he's sort of a, a, a you know a, a person that I studied a lot and, and love a lot of his teachings. And and I, uh, I I tried to do I don't you know I'm not a I'm not of a tribe, but I, I really resonated with shamanic disciplines and how to cultivate those things. So I tried to put myself through um, some of those initiations. I spent a well, month ayahuasca will do that. Yeah, yeah well, the ayahuasca yeah, and a month alone in the wilderness that'll do it too. And in uh, San Pedro and some of these other ones. Um, and I've always been fascinated with what he said about this idea of um, mysticism and shamanism, sort of being the flip side of a potential psychosis or a potential schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I just wanted to see if you had any ideas or in depth or research or. Um, because I think a lot of people that are interested in this kind of stuff don't really see the pitfall and the danger of like going into these yeah. sort of no, it's, deeper it's, realms. It's a very important question. That uh, One of the scales that are used in, in research in this area is called schizotypy. Mm-hmm. So at the, the far right end of it, you are schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. You, you can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality anymore. Mm-hmm. You're dangerous to yourself and to everybody else. Mm-hmm. On the other, the complete other side is you have no schizotypy at all, which means, among other things, you have basically no fantasy life 
a limited imagination, so on. And some people, like, I want my airline pilot to be very, very low on schizotypy. <laughs> you want people to be there. It's yeah. useful to have this range. <laughs> right. I want my artist to be pretty close to schizophrenic, but not completely. Yeah. You know, and then the range in the middle. Some scientists should be a little bit more to the right and some left and so on. Right. So... Um, the celebrity chefs are probably a little bit to the right. The the chefs at Wendy's is a little bit to the left. You you have certain that people right. fall into these various slots. So psychic phenomena is, seems to be correlated with schizotypy. So it kind of makes sense. You need a vivid imagination, or at least the capacity for imagination, mm-hmm. for holding fantasy, for all of that stuff, mm-hmm. in order to be able to have access. Mm-hmm. I think to where this information is coming from, most of which is unconscious. Mm-hmm. So. So there's definitely a relationship. And then there's going to be some middle ground where somebody who's probably a little bit schizophrenic and a little bit high in schizotypy is flagrantly psychic, Mm. but not under control. And that's a dangerous place to be. So uh, we we get, uh, I get a lot of emails from people and sometimes we get phone calls and letters and stuff. And you can tell that probably the majority of those are people who are in distress and they, they want it to stop. You know, they're hearing voices and they're feeling that thoughts are being stuck in their head from somewhere else. And they, they talk about little nanobot spiders inside of them and all of that stuff. A lot of it is schizotypy, very high on the right end of the scale. Some of it may also be really psychic. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they can't discriminate between the two. And that, that's why they're, they're looking for a way to turn it off. So part of the... So there's two aspects of this scent. One is other people then say, oh, I want to be, I want to learn how to be much more intuitive and psychic. And my response is, really? You, you really want to do that? Because you're, you're going to open yourself up to a whole new world of uh, other people's pain and other people's yeah, problems yeah. and emotional distress, all and kinds of stuff. Yeah, and <laughs> and, and you you're almost like saying, uh, I would like to to develop uh, borderline personality, <laughs> and you can do that as you know yeah, as you know yeah. you meditate a long time, you become yeah. much more sensitive to other yeah. other people's issues, yeah. and you don't you know unless you're a therapist or something, it's not very valuable. Right. So, so. And along with training to become more psychic, whether it's through meditation or some other methods, if I were to develop a program like that, and I've been asked to develop programs like mm-hmm. that, I would want to spend the same amount of time to tell people how to turn it off mm-hmm. as to how to turn it on. Yeah, yeah, you have yeah. to be good on yeah. both directions, otherwise yeah. you're headed for trouble. Yeah, yeah. For Because of all of this, the second part I was going to say is, we're now involved in a study looking at the genetics of psychic ability because some people are simply predisposed to it and we want to know whether it's nature or nurture mm-hmm. if it's nurture which I think is part of it mm-hmm. uh, that's interesting if it's nature that's even more interesting because now we're talking right. about a genetic predisposition mm-hmm. if there is a, pre- a genetic predisposition then there are pharmaceuticals that can help tweak it on and off hmm. so we may be able to develop some far out in the future drugs that are targeted for this particular skill, right. in which case some, possibly some proportion of schizophrenics were driven into that because of the psychic ability, rather than taking these heavy-duty things that suppress everything, yeah, you everything target out. this one thing that basically saying you're you're just way too open. You're connected to the universe, and we need to shut you down, and then they become perfectly normal. Mm. 
So that's, you can either suppress or maybe we can turn it on. Right. And so for people who are already not high on either direction of the scale, mm-hmm. you can say for, for a short period of time, we can tweak your internal chemistry or genetics so that you will begin to experience what that is like without the dangers of, of st- getting stuck into it. Well, I hope that was valuable. It certainly was for me. Again, I'll put the links to Dr. Dean Radin's books in the show notes below. And please send me any questions that you have uh, or future topics you'd like for me to cover. The best way to leave messages is on the YouTube channel in the comment section. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day.